0: Man, Thank you so much, Liam and Kiara, for leading us uh, this morning, and good morning, everyone. Hey, so good to see all of your lovely faces again, and great to be gathered back in the space as we continue um, in day two of this week, and exploring um, the theme of identity and sexuality. We have back with us in chapel uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. And if you were not here yesterday, uh, just know that um, that his message was recorded. It'll be up online on The Rock. And uh, I actually shared with a couple students yesterday what The Rock stands for. Did you know? Because it's Northwestern, it has to be an acronym, right? And like you should have seen the look on her face. It was like I never knew that. Um, so how many of you all knew that the Rock stands for Relevant Online Community Knowledge? Anyone? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, uh, so that's your fun, fun fact, little tidbit of the day. Uh, some retro trivia, you can remember that. Um, but what you do need to remember um, is that if you go to the Student Life tab on the Rock. Uh, there's the chapel podcast, so you can go back and listen to yesterday's talk. So let me share a little bit about uh, Dr. Preston as uh, we invite him up. So Preston, he's a a biblical scholar, an international speaker, and a New York Times best-selling author who has written numerous books, including A People to Be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. He's also served as the general editor for the New Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible and the Church, from Zondervan. Uh, He has given talks to thousands of people around uh, the world on the topic of faith, sexuality, and gender. And uh, he does have a a website that you can, um, CenterForFaith.com, you can check that out, or Prestonsprinkle.com, I believe I got that correct. Um, But also, you can check out uh, his podcast called Theology in the Raw. And uh, a great place to help continue uh, learning and growing in this conversation. So Preston and his wife Chris and their four children currently live in Boise, Idaho. And uh, he is delighted to be back with us for a second day and we're privileged to have him. So would you please give another warm Northwestern welcome on this cold day to Dr. Preston Sprinkle. And uh, would you once again join me in praying for him and praying for ourselves as he shares with us. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have sent Christ to rescue us so that we can stand before you as your redeemed children and to sing your praise. Thank you for how we can do that and how we have done that already this morning. Thank you for how we can continue in worship now as we hear from one of your servants, Preston. Thank you for bringing him here to this campus. I pray that he would be a pure channel of your grace to flow through. Work afresh in him by your spirit and Holy Spirit, spirit of truth fill us to encounter the grace and love of Christ towards greater understanding and transformation and that we would live and think and act more like Christ today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. Uh, It's good to be back with you. Uh, Just a show of hands really quick. How many were here yesterday? Okay, good. Because today is a continuation of yesterday. I even left the chairs on stage as a as a tangible reminder that we are talking about real people and a diverse group of stories today. We can never, ever, ever lose sight of that, especially since we are going to dig into the Bible today. We're going to dig into theology. We're going to wrestle with arguments from the short time we have. And when when we do that, Christians can become more prone to forget that we're talking about real people. So we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Now, several years ago, when I started to dig into this conversation, and I heard lots of stories and got to know lots of people, and there was just a lot of LGBT people had been raised in a church and had gone through some really, really bad, I would say even traumatic experiences, and when I kept hearing those stories over and over and over, it it caused me to go back to the text of Scripture with a fresh lens, with, with an open mind. I mean, several years ago, I came back and said, okay, I know, I know what I grew up believing, but I didn't know why I believed it. I grew up believing that homosexuality is a sin, period. The end, full stop. But nobody really told me why. Nobody really told me, like, what does the Bible actually say about this, and, and how come there's smart people who disagree with that? Like, what, what are their arguments? What, how come they're reading the Bible differently? And so I came back to the text of Scripture with an open mind to go where the text leads, and to be totally honest, I was making a lot of people really nervous. I remember uh, blogging my way through kind of various passages in the Bible, and there were some passages that I was looking at that had been traditionally interpreted to kind of condemn gay people, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's what this passage is about, and people were getting really nervous. I I remember people, you know, they'd ask me, they'd be like, well, Preston, you know, whoa 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 what are you doing here like what we need to know where do you stand on the issue of homosexuality and I said well f- first of all it's not an issue but um you know I'm not quite sure yet I'm only I'm halfway through Genesis I'll let you know when I get through Revelation and i I was making so-called Bible believing Christians nervous for going with the Bible that this is the most bizarre, like psychologically confusing thing to me is that in the church when we claim to be Bible-believing Christians, sometimes we make people really nervous by studying the Bible and going where the text leads when it comes to things like, I don't know, race relations or immigration or, I, I'll just stop there because we're already in enough controversy today. But, I mean, it's, it's really shocking how sometimes Jesus can be so offensive to Christians and I said, I don't, I, I, you know, tradition didn't die for me. Jesus died for me, and I'm going to follow the text even if it offends traditional-minded Christians. And so I wanted to go where the text leads, and I, I, I did my best to look at both sides of this debate with an open mind. I've dialogued with the leading, affirming Christian scholars in the world. I've sat in the office of people who Say that the Bible uh, affirms same-sex marriage, not to critique, but to listen and understand. I want to know, what does the text actually say? Now, having done that, I did land on uh, the so-called traditional view of marriage, or what I call, and I'll I'll put the slide back up here if I can get there, Um, I call it the, the historically Christian view of marriage. I don't. Li- I, I'll use the phrase traditional view, but I just. I, I, I again. I, I'm not going to believe in something just because it's traditional. So, but there, there is a, a historical Christian view of marriage, and having studied the Bible as fairly as as I possibly know how, uh, I do think that that historically Christian view does represent. What God has revealed through Scripture. So let me just give you three reasons why I believe in a traditional view. I've got this clock just yelling at me right now. So I'm, I'm gonna, if I have time, i want to try to address some of the pushback, some of the arguments. Um, and I think that's really important. So if I don't get to it, you know, I, I would encourage you to do your own research. Don't just, don't just believe something because I say it. I didn't die for you. I'm not the Bible. I'm going to show you how I'm looking at the Bible, but you need to do your own study and you need to do it with a fair, open mind so that you're following what the text actually says. So the first reason why I believe in a historically Christian view of marriage is that when Scripture talks about marriage, it says that Sex difference is part of what marriage is. Let me lay this out here. There's, there's, two, there's two general definitions of marriage that, that you can hold to. Uh, the first definition is, is basically the, the, the widely accepted definition. Um, legal definition in in America, that that marriage is a consensual union between two, or or a consensual union between two humans. Oh, that that went away, didn't it? Here we go. Um, The first definition is that marriage is a union between two consensual humans. That definition is one possible option. Um, It is very modern. uh, It's very Western, and it does come from you know, a secular society. I'm not saying it's therefore wrong, I'm just saying that this is a very new way of understanding marriage. The other option of what marriage is, is that, you, that marriage is specifically a union between two sexually different persons. And, and this is the definition of marriage that most religious traditions have held to. So some people ask me, you know, they, they say, well, wait a minute, Preston, okay, you believe in this traditional view, well, what, what does it matter if two people of the same sex get married? They're not hurting anybody, what do you care what they do in the bedroom? And, and these are good questions, but it's not the ultimate question. The ultimate foundational question is not, can two people of the same sex get married? The ultimate question is, what is marriage? We cannot assume that there's one definition of marriage that we all agree on. Typically, people assume the the first definition of marriage. We need to define what marriage is. We need to know why we believe that marriage is a certain definition, not just state what marriage is. So when you go back to Genesis 1, I'm having loads of tech problems up here, but I'm going to roll with it. When you go back to Genesis 1, you have all these differences in creation, singing together in harmony, heaven and earth, light and day, evening and morning, over and over and over you have all these differences broadcasted throughout Genesis 1, but the beauty of Genesis 1 is these differences are not at odds with each other, they're not creating chaos, they are being ordered by the creator into a harmonious, unified relationship, and at the climax of all these differences in Genesis 1 is a creation of humanity as male and female. That Statement about sex differences, male and female, is woven into the fabric of a beautiful, glorious creation account filled with differences complementing each other in harmony. In Genesis 2, we see kind of a closer look at the creation of humanity. And here we see sex differences sort of explored again. And at the, at the end of Genesis 2, now we see male and female not just created, but now we see male and female coming together in uh, what the Bible calls a one-flesh covenant union that we now call marriage. And so when we talk about, when we talk about sex differences and marriage, both of these themes are woven into the fabric of the creation account in Genesis 1. And to Right, I think this is um, uh, probably the best summary of, I think, what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2, is that uh, the coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. And this is really important, because I think some people say, gosh, you know, why, why is there such a debate about this topic? Like, aren't we just talking about a couple verses in Leviticus, and we don't read Leviticus, let alone obey Leviticus anymore? Like, wh-? okay, there's a verse in Romans, there's some Greek word in 1 Corinthians that nobody knows how to translate. And people say, this isn't, this is just kind of subsidiary to the creation narrative But if you go all the way back to the creation account and ask a more fundamental question of what is marriage, now we're dealing with some really fundamental themes regarding God's order of creation. In Genesis 2, just to give you some specific, you know, text here, you have this kind of interesting phrase, um, suitable helper. This is in the context of... um, of, of the creation of Eve and, and Eve is called a, a in some translations a suitable helper and, and by the way this, this word kind of throws people off especially uh, women because it sounds kind of demeaning helper, oh you're just a helper and some of you maybe have grown up in those kind of environments um, but the word helper the Hebrew word helper is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God helping Israel <laughs> through military intervention. So Israel goes into battle, and they're like, ah, oh, run away! You know, they're losing, and they run away, and God's like, oh my gosh, all right, I, I got this. Let me intervene and help you. <laughs> and so here, it's almost like, I mean, it, it, it's almost the opposite of a demeaning term. It's almost like God's looking at Adam and saying, oh, geez, you need some serious help. I need to create <laughs> a woman. So... The, um, so... Equality is written all over the pages of Genesis 1 and 2. But the the main word that I'm after here is the word suitable. It's the Hebrew word kenegdo. It's only used twice in the Old Testament, here in 218 and 220. Kenegdo is a compound Hebrew word combining two different Hebrew words. One is ki, which means something like similar. I really hope I don't misspell this. Similar or same Sameness, equality, and neged, not necked, if you're from Louisiana, but ne- neged, well, she was necked, so that works too. Um, <laughs> n- neged has to do with uh, difference or opposite. So he- here, this is, and I, I don't, look, I, you, you, it, it would be, a, Bad exegesis to read so much into just one word. I don't want to do that. But it is interesting that the author of Genesis takes two Hebrew words, one that conveys similarity, equality, another one that conveys difference, and combines them to create a word tailored for this moment. This moment when when, when God is talking about the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. It's a beautiful word combining both similarity and difference wrapped up with equality. Uh, a few v- verses later, we have the um, we have, uh, this significant statement about marriage in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 is kind of like the, the John 3.16 of marriage passages in the Bible. Okay? This, is, this is where we get the whole phrase like, uh, they shall become one flesh. What's interesting, well... It's oh, interesting to me, I'm kind of a Bible geek, but it's interesting that um, 2.24 starts off with this, this logical connector, for this reason, or some translations say therefore. Now, that means that the meaning of 2.24 is not just in 2.24, like 2.24 is linked to 2.23, you can't understand the meaning of this one flesh union by just reading 2.24. You have to look at 2.23 because they are logically linked together. So 2.23 says, the man says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is a beautiful statement of equality. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This doesn't do away with equality. It maintains equality, but it highlights difference. So we have sameness and Difference, similarity and difference wrapped up into one. And then he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It does, I mean, again, and again, I, I don't want to say thou must believe everything I'm saying now. I'm just saying from my vantage point, when, it, when we ask what is the one flesh union that the Bible talks about that we use the term marriage to describe, it would seem that it's not just two consensual humans But it's two sexually different humans, equal but different. And there's something about that blend of equality and difference wrapped up into one as it's woven into Genesis 1 and 2 that climaxes here in the one flesh union. And um, Jesus agrees with me, which is good. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, Jesus Duke. Um, so So here Jesus quotes 2.23, What's interesting is he keeps for this reason, but he doesn't bring in 220, sorry, he quotes 224, he doesn't bring in 223. Instead, he quotes 127, which is an even more explicit statement about sex difference. And then Jesus kind of tweaks the original Hebrew here, which he's allowed to do. I don't recommend this, okay? He's Jesus, you're not, so he can tweak the Hebrew if he wants to. But instead of saying they, he says the two, which, it, it means the same thing, okay? But he even gets it more explicit. So, question, question I feel like Dwight Schrute. Question, is um, uh, the two, is it two cons- just two humans? Or is it precisely two sexually different persons? And I'm not going to answer it. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm drawing it, so I guess I'm answering it. But I, I, from my vantage point, okay, it seems like the best reading is that the two is precisely male and female, not just two humans, and oh, sure, it can be male and female, but it doesn't need to be male and female. It seems that male-female is part of what it means to form a one-flesh union. Okay, Uh, so, uh, honestly, I feel like this is, this might be one of the most uh, biggest questions. For those of you who are wrestling with same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships in the traditional view, and you're like, I grew up with the traditional view, but I got loads of gay friends, and now I'm like, I don't know what I think anymore. The number one question that you can ask yourself is, again, what is marriage? What's your definition of marriage? And where did you get that definition from? And how does Scripture inform your definition of marriage? Those are three really simple questions that everybody who's wrestling with the theology of this thing should be able to answer, with an informed, you know, perspective, um, because a lot of people just kind of race to Leviticus, race to Romans, whatever, but the, the, the definition of marriage is the fundamental question that we need to begin with. Second reason why I believe in a historically Christian view is that when Scripture talks about same-sex sexual relations, it always prohibits them. By the way, there's not a lot of passages, okay, and oh, by the way, every single one of these passages is surrounded by many other prohibitions that apply to all people. In fact, Romans 1, the big, you know, Romans 1 is kind of the big passage that talks about same-sex relationship, relationships, and people always talk about Romans 1 this, Romans 1 that. Well, guess what? The rest of Romans 1 addresses about mm, 30 different sins that probably all of us have violated before chapel this morning, at least some of them. I mean, read the rest of Romans 1. You should, the whole point of Romans 1 is to drive you on your knees at the foot of the cross and say, God, I need your grace. Romans 1 is not about simply condemning gay people or condemning same-sex relationships. It's about condemning everybody. <laughs> so we can't just look at these so-called, you know, some people call them the clobber passages because Christians have beaten gay people over the head with them so much. We can't just look at these and just talk about same-sex relationships. We must talk about sin, period. But back to the point, when scripture does mention same-sex sexual relationships, it always prohibits them. Now that, and look, I'm very well aware that some people say that these passages don't apply to modern-day consensual adult relationships. And and if I have time, I'm gonna address that, okay? But the point still stands. When scripture does directly mention same-sex relationships, it's always in the negative. Now, do we see such uniformity on other ethical or theological issues in Scripture? I hope I don't do too much deconstruction here, but the, the Bible has a lot of tensions. I'm not, I'm not going to say contradictions. I'm going to say tensions and differences and, and how it speaks to various ethical questions, like divorce. Does the Bible always everywhere say that divorce is wrong from Genesis to Revelation? The answer is no. Deuteronomy... 24 is pretty lenient on divorce. Ezra 9 commands divorce. <laughs> no one reads Ezra 9, so no one knows about that. But um, you can ask, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, that was, well, there's some specific situation going on. It's unique. It's whatever. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he says no to divorce. But then he says, except for sexual immorality. And then Paul adds his two cents. There's, there's diversity and movement in Scripture on something like Divorce. This is going to split the room um, uh, what about women in' so, I don't, uh, women in church leadership or positions of being a pastor preacher elder i don 't uh, for this morning i, I don 't care where you're at on that if you 're honest with scripture, you will admit that 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 the other view that that wrong view <laughs> has a verse or two to back up their view okay so if you 're Hardcore, like, pro, you know, women can serve in all positions of leadership. But, if, you know, if you were on a desert island and First Timothy 2 washed up on shore in a glass bottle, you wouldn't have that view. And yet, if you're hardcore, like, complementarian, um, same thing. If you're on a desert island and, you know, um, uh, Acts 21, we have Philip's daughters who are prophesying all over the place. Or if, like, you know, in 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when women are prophesying, cover your heads. You're like, oh, so you're down with them prophesying in church? Um, there's tensions in scripture on this question. Did you choose God or did he choose you? And you seven-point Calvinists are going to say, I don't see any tension in scripture on this. <laughs> um, but you, you know, four and a half, whatever, point Calvin, whatever that even means, are like, well, it's both. You know, well, yeah, people say it's a both and because there's verses on both sides. Should you kill your enemy or love your enemy? And if you did your devotions in the book of Joshua this morning, you're going to say, kill them all. (laughs) And then some of you might have read the Sermon on the Mount, and you're like, no, I think we should love them. And we can go on and on. The point is, the point is, Scripture has movement, tensions, diversity, Old Covenant, New Covenant, different ethical systems to some extent with both covenants. There, There is... There are ethical tensions in Scripture, so this—I mean, this—that po- th- makes this point pretty remarkable. That when Scripture does directly mention same-sex relationships, same-sex sexual relationships, from Genesis to Revelation, whenever they're mentioned, it's always prohibited. So I think that's—that's that's at least a, a something to to consider. If God. Really does bless same sex relationships. Um, it, uh, he, he could have had maybe a little more clarity in, in scripture on this. It, it is remarkable that it's always, they are always prohibited. Now, some people say, well, that's just your interpretation, Preston. You're reading the Bible through your white American, you know, straight lens. And, and that's actually a good pushback. I, I, I received that because we do have ethnic, um, socioeconomic, Uh, We have gender lenses that we read the Bible through. That's a good concern. So one of the best ways for me and you to cross-check your individual private interpretation of Scripture is to go global. (laughs) To ask people of different ethnicities, of different ages, of different socioeconomic statuses. Ask people of different denominations. Read people in the pre modern era. Read middle age thinkers. Read people, not middle age, like, well, yeah, read them too. But I mean, read people who are writing for, uh, during the middle ages. Read pre Constantine writers. Get, read, read a diverse group of theologians. So it is remarkable that for 2,000 years, um, the Protestant. Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic, I mean, you can cast this net as broadly as you want, have have read these texts similar to how I've explained them. So, um, and and again, I'm not saying that this is a, I'm not saying that this is a standalone argument because I'm a Bible guy. I'm not, I don't want to just follow tradition. I want to follow the Bible. What I am saying is that when people say, oh, that's just your interpretation, you're reading in the text what you want, I'm like, man, I've cross-checked this with as diverse a group of Christians as I could possibly think. And for 2,000 years, um, it hasn't been just my individual interpretation of Scripture. And you, you can cast this net as broadly as you want. You can look at different forms of church, high church, low church, reform, Wesleyan, frozen chosen Presbyterian, snake handling, charismatics, KJV-only fundamentalists, and those who think the message is a translation. You can look at any <laughs> form of Christianity. And some of these, I mean, so, I mean, think about it. If you put some of these people in a room together, <laughs> I mean, you're going to have these guys getting bit by snakes, and these guys aren't going to, they're not going to heal them. They're going to say, hey, you're on your own, man. You don't even believe in this stuff, so figure it out. And then, you know, these people who, you know, they're over reading the message. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> I like the message. Give me a break. I, just not a translation. Um... Uh, Christian. the. This is one of the beautiful things I love about Christianity. Is that it's so diverse. I love. The, I even like. Some people are scared of the theological diversity. I think certain levels of theological diversity are really, really healthy. So it is remarkable that when you cast the net this broadly. The basic definition of marriage and whether or not God blesses same-sex sexual relationships has been one of the few things that this diverse group of Christians have all believed. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's therefore right. just means we should be cautious um, if we think that, you know, all of this diverse group of Christians have been reading the Bible in, incorrectly. Maybe they have, but that there should be at least some caution, some caution there. I mean, we can't even agree on it. We can't even agree on what books belong in the Bible if you cast casting that, that broadly. Okay, there are really smart, godly people who disagree with everything I've said. Okay, so let me um, let me just get to let me get to at least this first argument um, that goes against everything I'm saying, um, and it goes like this: that the prohibition passages, the Leviticus, Romans, Corinthians. Uh, That these passages only apply to non-consensual relationships. Uh, That, you know, when the Bible prohibits same-sex relationships, some people say, oh, that's only talking about rape. Or it's only talking about uh, pederasty is this ancient practice um, whereby an older man would have sexual relationships with a teenage boy. And that was widespread in the ancient world. I mean, all, all of these are some kind of Non-consensual or exploitative relationship where there's power differentials involved. So this is a this is actually this is an argument you should wrestle with. So when Paul and Leviticus prohibit same-sex relationships, are they only thinking about non-consensual relationships? So let me respond to this um, with a few things. First of all, this argument still needs to answer the question: what is marriage? Or mewage almost. <laughs> Um, I've got so many movies running around through my head right now. Um, what is marriage? So even if, you could sh- even, even, if, even if this argument is true, even if this argument is true, it still isn't sufficient. You still need to define marriage. But when you look at the text, the actual prohibition passages, they are unqualified and absolute. There's no mention of masters and slaves. There's no mention of non consensuality In fact, there's language of mutuality. For instance, in Romans, you wouldn't have um, you wouldn't have a younger teenage boy who's being exploited by an older man be described as having passion for that older man. You wouldn't have a male slave who's being raped by his master. You wouldn't describe the relationship in mutual terms also romans 1 talks about women um, and men in this passage what's significant about that is that in the ancient world adult consensual relationships among women were widespread you don't all the sort of non-consensual stuff that we hear about that's only with males and even then we do see consensual relationships between males in the ancient world they're more rare but they did exist but when it came to female same-sex relationships those were almost exclusively adult consensual same status same age Um, this is a a funeral relief from the time of christ these are um, oftentimes you know a married couple died they would have a funeral relief to commemorate their relationship and these are two women of same socioeconomic status. You can, oh, it got too low there. The, the, the hairstyle, the, even the clothing they're wearing here, they're same status, same age, and they're holding hands in, in a traditional gesture called the dextrarum iunctio. It's a Latin phrase that means the joining of the hands and it symbolizes a marriage relationship. And so these two consensual adult females had a marriage-like relationship um, and they celebrated that. We have yeah. We have many other uh, passages uh, in, in ancient literature that describe consensual female same-sex relationships. And we have other passages that do describe male same-sex relationships as well. So, it is true that most male same-sex relationships in the ancient world were exploitative, but not all. And most female relationships were not exploitative. So, it's simply, it's, it's his historically inaccurate to say that Paul... And others had no category for what we're talking about today when it comes to, like, two adults in a consensual, loving, same-sex union. All right, I want to jump ahead, and uh, I want to show a a video clip. um, Because, again, if if we just focus so much on the theology and arguments, we can just turn turn this into just a debate. And... People are rarely debated into the kingdom. People are rarely debated into changing their viewpoint on a certain topic. Um, Again, I said this yesterday, our our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. If you don't embody the radical grace of Jesus, people aren't going to care about what you believe. This is a conversation between um, the guy on the uh, left is Jim Daly, president of Focus on the Family. Okay? The guy uh, next to him is Ted Trimpa, a non-religious uh, gay activist, and this is uh, then Gabe Lyons is hosting the conversation. Um, I just want to hear you, I, I want to play for you uh, just how they talk about their friendship with each other as we close today.
2: into a space where, you know, immediately in this culture, you're seen as um, compromising, as as Ted said, just because you're beginning a relationship. How would you encourage them to continue forward and to to really remove that fear from how they think about it? Yeah, I think that's it. Have courage. And I think, um, know, know who you are. I mean, the one thing that really offended me is that Christian leaders who knew that I was reaching out, not just Intense direction, but with those in other areas of conflict with a traditional Christian viewpoint, abortion, things like that, um, they would send me a note and they would say, how could you betray us like this? And I'm sitting here thinking, it's a taste perhaps of what the Lord felt when the Pharisees, I'm afraid to say it, would ridicule the Lord for engaging people that didn't think the way the Pharisees thought. Right, And I I just think, we think that behavior is gone and we've gotten beyond being pharisaical. It is alive and well. And we've got to recognize it in the church. And we've got to run from it. Because there's two things that I see in the New Testament. Salvation through Christ and don't become a Pharisee. And there are, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, that's what Jesus was saying. And so when I read it, my thing is to always be true to that. And I just think there are a lot of cousins of Caiaphas walking around. And man, A, I don't want to be that. And the other thing is I better do all I can to make sure I can influence the people around me that think that way to rethink how they're thinking. Because it's a dangerous place to be when you're judging other people in a way that is not your position to do that. What I want Ted to see in our relationship is the love of Christ, certainly the truth of what I believe, and I think our friendship is strong enough that Ted can bear that, and, uh, and vice versa. And I think at, at the end of the day, that's what the Lord will either smile about or frown upon, and uh, I trust in that process. And I think, again, the only arsenal in the tool chest that we have in the spiritual context is the love of God. Everything else is human. The love of God is hard to defeat. And, uh, I actually, I, express. I and, and I mean this very sincerely, I feel it every time I'm with you. <laughs> no, I really do. That's fine. Yeah. Um, okay. That's the Lord. And, it just took, and I realize we're almost done. I went through open heart surgery last August. It was a complete surprise. One day I thought I was fine. Three weeks later I was in New York um, under the knife, and Someone who I knew was always praying for me, was always checking on me, and I could feel the presence, was Jim. And that's just something I'll never forget. Well, thank you both.
1: Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us and for reaching out to us when we were uh, your enemy, your opponent, Lord. And you graced us with your presence. May we embody that same grace as we follow Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.